Welcome back to The Bakery, everyone, where we break bread with the world's finest. This is The Loaf Podcast, and today we're being joined by Anne-Marie Canning, MBE, an educational and access expert with over 20 years' experience in the industry. She's now the CEO of a paradigm-changing charity, The Brilliant Club. They work with bright students from disadvantaged backgrounds, helping them secure the futures they deserve. So, Anne-Marie, thank you for joining us today. No, thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, it's really, it's really nice. So um, just before we get into the proper discussions, we, uh, since we're the Loaf podcast, we like to ask all our guests a characteristic question. And we find you actually found out quite a lot about a person. So what's your favorite bread? Oh my gosh. Um, look, on a, on, a, on a good day, a nice bit of sourdough, but I am partial to a white Warburton. So, you know, either will work, especially if I'm at home in Doncaster, where I'm from, it's white Warburtons. If I'm here yeah. in my, my new home, I'll have a bit of sourdough. The thing is, it, it's the sign of a socially mobile person who's integrated their two worlds, which is you're happy to have like white bread or sourdough, and you're happy to have like Nescafe or a flat white. And, you know, you can move between those two worlds with ease. Yeah. No, we were saying literally sourdough comes with the not like, you know, non-GMO hummus and all that kind of thing. It's really like characteristic of quite like a metropolitan London world. How about you guys? Have you answered the bread question? What's your favorite uh, bread? That's a good question. I think I'm from Malta. I don't know if it's a tiny island in Europe. So we have this classic Maltese ftira, it's called, and you have it with olives mm. and capers and, and tuna and olive oil. And it's, it's beautiful. Oh, delicious. Yeah. I'm a bit more boring. I'm in Paris right now, so I like I'm on my year board, so I'd have to say baguette probably. Go with like the probably the most standard bread answer you could ever give. Lovely. So, yeah. Nice pointy baguette. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we um we were wondering because we were doing some research and we saw that you did quite a lot of work in, in Oxford. We were wondering what your Oxford experience was like. Obviously, Ollie and I um uh, we've lived there for the last two years. Mm. A wonderful time at Oxford as a staff member. It was my first job after university, um, and I was the first full-time like professional outreach person based in a college. I worked at University College, and I'd come from York, and I'd been the student union president and things like that. Uh, and so I came to Oxford and was really ambitious about what we could do in the college. And I had five years of basically doing loads of weird and wonderful stuff. Like we set up the first uh, ambassador scheme. Uh, we uh, created an, uh, an alternative prospectus, which we crowdsourced and we printed on uh, the Guardian's print press in between printing runs. So it was really cheap and we never had to worry about giving them out. We ran a road show to all the schools in South Yorkshire where we literally got a man called Naz who took us round in his van and we visited every school. It was wonderful. And uh, I think one of the reasons it was so wonderful was... Um, I had a great head of house. I had Sir Ivor Crew, who, you know, had come from Essex University, was heading up the Conference of Colleges Admissions Committee, and he really gave me like permission to spread my wings. So it was great. But my favorite ever email from that job was an email from the domestic bursar, Elizabeth Crawford, who is a wonderful domestic bursar. And it said in capital letters, the children will not be served lobster um, because we had to do a lot of work to get the buttery <laughs> serving food that primary school kids and younger children would be able to eat but yeah it was a wonderful experience it not all of it was comfortable though don't don't get me wrong like sometimes I felt like I was wearing a hair like a hair shirt to try and ensure other people didn't have to wear that hair shirt so I can remember a really like pointed discussion about in the prospectus as to whether we referred to 
breakfast, lunch and dinner. And I was like, can we just say three meals a day? Because uh, that doesn't rule anyone out. Because where I'm from, it's breakfast, uh, dinner and tea. Um, so, yeah, it was great. And, and I had a lovely time in the broader city as well. I really got to know Oxford in its like fullness. I was a local councillor for a while, particularly for a ward where loads of students lived. So right in the city centre. So very special place in my heart has Oxford. Yeah, you said you were the one of the first access officers, right, or the first. So did you experience a lot of friction in that way from people who didn't really understand sort of quite the role yet and, and, and what like the kind of thing that you were trying to do? Yeah, I mean, you can set up all the programs and activities you want, but actually the bigger the bigger cultural change has to come as well alongside that. And, you know, I can definitely remember a few really uncomfortable moments. One One moment does stand out where I had a visit of some students from, I think they were from Wembley Way in London and uh, a student at the college who, let's say, wasn't a student ambassador said, you know, it's diversity and inclusion gone mad. Uh, All of the kids were non-white and uh, I just thought, oh no, what am I going to do? And the moment I knew things were really changing is when another student said, it's not on, mate. Like you can't speak like that in front of school children, like they're entitled to visit this place and be a part of what we're doing. And that's when I knew things were really starting to switch around. So we made some very meaningful changes at UNIV. And I think we created a model that other colleges could take and run with, um, which was about doing very sort of thoughtful outreach work that built relationships with schools rather than what I call drive-by outreach. So just sort of rocking up and doing a parent's evening and off you go. We were really looking to build more long-term relationships, work with younger pupils, bring through a talent pipeline. Um, so yeah, it wasn't wasn't without its difficult moments, but I left after five years knowing that the cultural change was sort of starting to really swing in the right direction. Um, but ultimately I left because... I wanted to work somewhere where we could have a conversation about admissions processes and contextual admissions in particular, which I felt at Oxford, we weren't there yet. And so that's why I went off to King's College London, which is a huge institution, as you might know. Mm, That's, it's really interesting. Do you think that because of Oxford's prestigious history and it's the absolute like intellectual um, prestige that it holds that, and the amount of people that want to go to Oxford that it's kind of a hotbed for these discussions and controversies around social mobility. So, for example, getting to Oxford is, some might say, the goal, Oxbridge, that is. Yeah, I mean, it, it it has a very special place in the hearts and minds of the British public, right? Um, the UK's original university. Um, and so inevitably it faces scrutiny. But you can trace a direct line back to things like the Laura Spence case and, and Gordon Brown's intervention there, which really put Oxford on the map as a place where, you know, fairness was really being questioned and there was a lot of scrutiny from the media. Um, And, and, you know, I I do think it's right that the university sector has to continually let the general public and uh, folks who are applying to university know that they're going to be treated fairly and that everyone's got a shot if they've got the grades to play, right? Um, And that, for me, I think is is the really important thing. Um, That said, I think that you know, the focus on Oxford and Cambridge is sometimes really unhelpful and distracts from other parts of the sector where we need to have a conversation about either access or increasingly so what happens to those students once they're at university. Because once one thing you can say about Oxford, it's got very low dropout rates. That's not the case at other institutions across the UK. Yeah, I mean, we saw uh, doing some research, the work that you did at KCL moving uh, 
the percentage of BLM, uh, sorry, BME students up so much higher to 50%. Mm. Uh, how, how did you go about that? So you said it was a, it was a contextual process, right? Yeah. So, so, so if you want to really change and, and let's, let's be honest, if you're trying to change this facet of a university, i.e. who gets to be a student there, it's like the biggest change process you could ever imagine for a, an institution like King's that was 200 years old. But like, there's a few ways we did it. One, you start really young and you build really good relationships with schools and colleges. You have really good support for students when they're in that sort of A-level uh, post-16 phase. And then what's really important is to hinge that together with an admissions process that doesn't act as a prize giving ceremony. So we're looking for potential. We're not giving out prizes for A-level results. We're looking for potential and really starting to switch around that, that perception of we're here to try and offer a place not to try and decline a student. And so we ran a process that actually took a lot of inspiration from the Harvard University admissions process, whereby if you were a low-income student, if you were a student that fell into like an underrepresented category, if you'd been on one of our programs, when you dropped, dropped into our admission system from UCAS, we would freeze your application. And it would be read by a team of readers, just like it is in Harvard, where we'd bring in extra information. If anything was missing, we'd chase you up. If your teacher's reference wasn't very good, we'd ask them to write some more. Uh, if there were you know, things that we needed to know a little bit more about, we'd find that out. If you'd done any written work for a program at King's before you'd applied, we'd have a look at that. And that meant we were able to look at a student in the round. And we could also put in support to help those students get to us. I remember a refugee student in particular, he'd not been allowed to do A-level chemistry uh, because he'd not got GCSEs in this country. And so we said, we'll put you in for your chemistry uh, A-level and we'll provide a tutor to do that. So we did whatever it took to help a student flourish. And then we would make them an offer that said, look, the offer for medicine at King's College London is uh, A-star, A-star, A. Uh, and we will accept you with essentially two grades lower than that. So we had a tolerance. But the way we structured the offer like that is it really encourages students to to do as well as they possibly can in their A-levels, which we know matters to recruiters and industry. But it also said there's a safety net for you because it's going to be harder for you to, to really secure those grades. Because the young people we were working with were in schools where, you know, to get A-star, A-star, A, would have been sensational once in a decade occurrence. Um, so we were really looking for potential to flourish. And I always tell the story of this particular student who I knew for a good few years and came to King's to be a medic. And he, he came in on, on the lower grade offer and he went on to a medical program that had an extra year on the front. Well, this student top of the medical school, not even in that like extended year program, but in the entire medical school and with the oh. largest school, medical school in Europe. Right. Um, and then he intercalated and got a first class degree um, in immunology. And, you know, the benefit he brings to the classroom at King's is amazing. But I'm just so excited for what he'll do when he hits his career in the NHS. And I know for him, serving his own community as a doctor is exactly what he wants to do. So, yeah, stories, stories like that, student, they really helped kings to feel proud about what it was doing um you know you can do all the activity but like i say it's the cultural change as well in an institution in the like, academic body that matters just as much and then i guess the final thing is how we worked with parents um which was super interesting but um maybe that's a topic for another bit of the conversation uh yeah we'll get to parent power in a moment i just wanted to quickly 
touch on what you said about Harvard, because I don't know if you've been, I'm sure you have been following the news, uh, what's been going on in the Supreme Court in the USA, getting rid of race-based uh, admissions, and this idea of affirmative action and the controversy around it. Some people think, oh, maybe it's not fair that these people are given, for example, lower requirements because then it disadvantages other cohorts. Yeah, I mean, affirmative action is is a, a U.S. university concept. We don't we don't have that here in the U.K. in the same way. Um, in fact, ethnicity data in UCAS doesn't come through to the university until after you've enrolled. So it's not a piece of information that universities have. So the, there's not a huge parallel to be drawn there. But here in the U.K., we do have a regulatory environment that says for the tuition fees universities are charging, they must make a change in terms of who gets to access the university. And I do think it's appropriate in... Um, you know, the UK has incredible levels of educational inequality and they are widening. Unless you think that kids in the North just aren't as bright, which is categorically not the case, you want to think about how you can access that talent and potential and bring those students through. So I do think things like contextual admissions, they're just providing that that little bit of sort of tilt of the system that enables a student to make it through. I still think even with a contextual offer, incredibly difficult for some students uh, to secure the grades and progress to highly selective universities. So, yeah, obviously a huge moment in the US. And, and I will say affirmative action in the US is a direct one of the direct sort of um, medicines that's being applied because they have legacy admissions, right? We don't have that in, here in the UK and we should be really proud of our university system that we don't have that. You can't pay to play in a UK university. You, you, you'll know this going through your Oxford admissions process. You really yep. need to cut the mustard. And I can remember meeting colleagues from Harvard and, you know, that was just yeah, really like a point of difference whilst we were in the pub having a drink around they could not believe I didn't care about a young person's family or background in the way that they did, uh, but cared about in a different way, which is if if you've had everything stacked against you, I'm interested in that. Um, but you still got to get the grades. And that's yep. the thing we don't compromise on often in the UK. Yeah, I, I think there's so much work to be done in terms of contextual admissions. Unfortunately, though, and I'm, I'm sure you agree with this, and that's so much of the work the Brilliant Club is already doing. The balance needs to be readdressed before then, getting the right education so that they can even pass that. So, for example, or just in terms of experience with Oxford, a, a kid already has to be highly intelligent by the time they reach 18, even for contextual admissions to work. So one thing that you've mentioned to me before is um, the link between health and education. I think that creates a, yeah. a barrier between North and South. So could you just tell our listeners a little bit about that? Absolutely. So you've got to start early, right? Like we know that so much of a child's life is set in the first 1000 days. And so it really matters what happens in early childhood and actually access to university. You know, my job's really important. The Brilliant Club's really important. This agenda is really important, but it's the cherry on top of the cake, right? And like, we should really care about what's happening much earlier. And, and that's why the Brilliant Club, we work age eight to 18, right? We're right in there with like key stage one kids doing programs like Can Stars Float in the Bath, which is very complex astrophysics. But the work I've done in Bradford has been all about, in the early years in particular, health and education collide in in a really dramatic way and so if you don't have the health piece right you can't get the education piece right so in Bradford and I've been sharing something called the opportunity area there for about five years we've got Europe 
Europe's largest longitudinal cohort study. So when you have a baby in Bradford, we will say to new mums, would you like to join the born in Bradford cohort? And if they say yes, we collect health data about those children. Well, a few years ago, we were able to bring in education data. And this is the first data linkage of that kind in the UK. And it's really groundbreaking, right? I'm, I'm so proud of what we've done there because the born in Bradford study that looks at this, it looks at the primary school kids in Bradford. And we found nearly 3,000 children who couldn't read but not because they were illiterate or struggling with their reading. They couldn't read because they didn't have the right glasses on their face. And in some yeah. cases, didn't have any glasses at all. And so we got money to uh, run a major trial called Glasses in Classes, where we essentially gave children the glasses they needed in their desk drawer and one to take home. And we're currently looking at what that's doing to boost literacy rates. Well, if you get literacy right in the early years, it flows through into mathematical education, science education. You can't access a curriculum if you can't read well and you don't have good comprehension and the rest of it. So for me, that unlocking of health and education is, is really important. And and, uh, you know, for the first time in the UK, a couple of years ago, life expectancy started falling. And so I think we're in a real watershed moment where we can see inequalities multiplying and driving each other. And surely a part of the answer as to how we build a more prosperous country where, you know, young, young children can flourish, but also just more generally society can be productive is we've got to start thinking about health and education, how those systems interact and how we can work in a much smarter way to get to things before they become a serious problem. So yeah, the, the work on health and education in Bradford is run through Born in Bradford, which is the University of Leeds, York and Bradford. And it is it is just so inspiring. It really, every time I see it, I get a lump in my throat because it is a remarkable piece of work. That's, that's beautiful. And you're so right that physical health is intersect so much with uh, privilege, class, education, and I suppose even mental health intersects a lot with those things and the access that people have to mental health services mm -hmm. and around mental health awareness. Mm. I mean, some some of you might have heard of the Marmot Review, which is, it's aging now. It's about 15 years old, I think. But it was like a landmark review by, by Sir Michael Marmot looking at health inequalities. And I remember in the foreword from Michael Marmot, I didn't expect to see a higher education access topic right in the foreword, but he said if we um, equalise the graduation rates uh, of people across the UK, um, so we offered you know equal access to folks from uh, poorer, less advantaged areas. I think it was 200,000 fewer premature deaths in the UK. And so you can start to understand the protective relationship between health and education. So everything's connected is what we say. Everything is connected. And as teachers, we don't get to ignore what's happening in children's broader lives. Uh, and as health, uh, health professionals, we shouldn't be ignoring what's going on in the world of education either. Yeah, it's amazing. It's really true. I mean, we, we've had quite a lot of focus on uh mental health in our podcast i know the brilliant club doesn't really work so much on that maybe it's it's not really that side of things but it's definitely something i think which is a huge access problem um for example uh lucas and i have a friend who's from quite a disadvantaged area and he's basically not had access so he's finally since coming to university in a prosperous area in oxford has been able to get the health that he needs it turns out he has bipolar disorder but he basically mm -hmm. didn't have access to that 
for growing yeah. up and he just was unbelievably lucky to come to Oxford anyway but it's a, yeah. it's a huge problem yeah there's a you know a huge attendance um, issue here in British schools at the moment uh, and a lot of that attendance and you know some of the figures are genuinely hair-raising about how few children are going to university regularly um, some of that attendance uh, is driven through what we call social and emotional school avoidance uh, so not wanting to go into school because you're struggling with like mental health issues anxiety uh, perhaps physical health and that goes for parents as well and a lot of that is the long tail of COVID still affecting schools uh, and colleges across the UK so I absolutely agree you know the the mental health component is is a core part of of health more broadly yeah thank you so I just wanted to ask you before we really get into the meat of uh talking about the brilliant club with you maybe just for our listeners who maybe don't know you so well could you give a brief introduction maybe a quick mission statement for the brilliant club before we can really get to discussing the work that you guys are doing uh, okay, here we go. Uh, the Brilliant Club is a nationwide education access charity, uh, and we work with young people from less advantaged uh, backgrounds to ensure they can progress to highly selective universities, and we want them to really flourish once they get there as well. Uh, and a key part of what we do is we bring PhD researchers into the mix. So the programs we run always have PhD researchers at the heart of it, working with young people to unlock their potential uh, and secure their progression to uh, to excellent universities. That's a it's a great mission statement. Would you say that it's based in a system of meritocracy? Is that a correct understanding? I mean, the Brilliant Club is the charity of nerds, right? We are really into excellence and people being able to unlock uh, their brilliant thoughts and thinking. And the children we work with, you know, they're kids who are from first generation families. They are students who um, are from particularly... Uh, underrepresented backgrounds in that they are from the bottom 40% of socioeconomic postcodes. Uh, and uh, we also make sure that we're working with students who have been on free school meals. So if your version of meritocracy is folks deserve to make the most of themselves uh, and uh, people's potential has to be supported to flourish, then we're absolutely within that realm. But, you know, we, we I, I will say at the Brilliant Club, I think one of the really refreshing things about us is if a teacher says to us, student doesn't hit that criteria, but we think they'd benefit for X, Y, Z reasons, they can come onto the program. Because I think a really important part is respecting teachers, like professional judgments about which children need this program. So we have that degree of flex at the Brilliant Club, which you won't find in many other organizations. Mm. Yeah, it, it makes me think of... Um sort of a key distinction in so I, I did a little like uh, philosophy of politics module so it might be something you find interesting um it makes me think of this sort of distinction between two kinds of social mobility and the one is where there's a barriers related one and there's sort of a a, a ladders related one to, if, if you want to put it like that so at the moment in the uk we effectively do have a barrier free apart from in certain cases full meritocracy in the sense that technically somebody from a super disadvantaged background doesn't have anything physically stopping them from, say, applying to one of the best unis, but they also don't have that which is required to get them there. So the right sustenance growing up, the right educational environment, the right family thing. And then the ladders related one is to get everybody up to the same level and with the same background and with the same help, being socially mobile and being able to show their true potential. So I think a pretty powerful mission statement of the Brilliant Club is trying to, trying to get the ladders to sort of equalize the playing field maybe a little bit. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think social mobility in the UK is a game of snakes and ladders, right? The the rules of the game are, are not hugely clear uh, to young people nowadays. And like, you know, let's be really honest, social mobility in the UK it's not in a in a fantastic place right now. Increasingly, where you're born is where you die, uh, and that doesn't seem right to me. Um, and, and you know, I think you're right about the barriers piece. It's about that structural inequality, isn't it? It's the structural inequality that, you know, when I think about it, it feels so big um, and is in so many different spheres of children's lives. But it's it's something that it's worth fighting for for everyone in British society. Because if we look at the work of, for example, Raj Shetty in uh, in Harvard, you know, he's proven using tax records that if you got social mobility right in the US, you would quadruple productivity. He asks us to think about all of the lost Einsteins, all of the innovations and ideas we've missed out on because people from particularly uh, low-income backgrounds don't get to make their ideas a reality. So I think for me, social mobility is a is a common good. And so rather than seeing it as like we're helping children who've not had the easiest start in life, I'm like, how do we build a better society for all of us? And allowing people to flourish has got to be a part of that. And, you know, that that's my own story as well. You know, it was a program like the Brilliant Club that opened up the world of education to me from you know, growing up in a pit village, looking after my mum, going to a school where only 11% of kids got five good GCSEs. It was a program just like the Brilliant Club that made the difference. Wow. I mean, I saw in one of your lectures that I think only two people in your whole school actually went to university. How does how does that motivate you now to help other people mm. to, to bring that mm. change? How, how, does, how does that motivate mm. you? Good research. Well done, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I think for some people who are highly socially mobile, they're like, you know, three of us went to university, like we're the ones who got through. I'm dead proud of that. Like, look at me. I'm like a sensational person. There were two and a half thousand students in my school. I just find myself thinking about the, what is it? 2,497 mm. who didn't get the mm. chance. And so it motivates me to to build an approach that cares about those students as well as the students like me. Um, so, yeah, I think there are some people who make it through in terms of social mobility and like, I did it. You should have to do it as well. Show us, you know, what you're made of. Whereas for me, I'm like, it shouldn't be as hard as it was for me. Let's make it better for the generations to follow. So I guess what I'm describing is rather than a social mobility that is like highly individualistic, I'm describing a social mobility that helps everyone around you. Um, and I know that my own my own journey to university has allowed me to unlock all sorts of benefits for my family uh, and my community around me. And I just want to share that with more people ultimately. And 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 I, I guess the final thing I'll just say, Lucas, as well is like I think one of the things we don't talk about a lot is is anger. And um, certainly when I was younger, I was really angry about what I'd experienced and I can remember particularly after my interview at Oxford, uh, a lovely fellow candidate said to me, I don't mind which one of us gets a place at this college because we've both worked equally as hard for our A-levels. And I thought, you're very sweet, but I don't have a teacher in two of my A-levels. So that can't be the case. And I think for me, that was the sort of realizing just how, how the odds are stacked for some people versus others. And so always been determined to sort of work with that, that sense of anger 
now my anger is very, a very cold anger. We talk about hot anger and cold anger in community organizing, which is one of the methods I use at the Brilliant Club. But it's a very sort of cold anger now, which is I've grown up, you know, I'm 37 now. I'm aging out of my social mobility story. But working with anger, I think, is really important when you're trying to tackle injustice, um, a bit like some of the injustices I've described uh, already in education, but also in terms of places. Yeah. I, the problem is, I think, is that, the Brilliant Club, as amazing as the work is, it shouldn't exist, right? It's readdressing balances which are pre-existent. And yeah. there's so many factors involved in that, right? Geographical factors uh, and, and government and state. So I was wondering, what suggestions would you make to a government now to sort of yeah. readdress those balances and work, work the right way around, if that makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. So um, if I was uh, the incoming government, whoever that might be, uh, I would be thinking about investing in early years and supporting families in particular. I would also be working uh, overtime to close the disadvantaged gaps that we've seen open back up since COVID and are increasingly yawning. Um, I would also ensure that I had a policy. Now, there's a big focus on vocational education at the moment, which is all well and good because uh, vocational education in the UK has been too weak for too long. But I wouldn't lose I wouldn't lose my focus in terms of keeping the routes to university open. Um, and I say that because, you know, 51% of students in London go to university versus uh, 31% uh, up in the Northeast. And like that 20% difference is, is really, really quite stark. So I would ensure that I had a higher education system that doesn't cap student numbers, for example, allows universities to take students uh, as many as they can and uh, can uh, essentially accommodate in order to make the opportunity available. Because over the next few years until we hit 2030, we're on this thing called the journey to a million. There are going to be a million applicants to British higher education in 2030. There's a huge boom in 18-year-olds. And here's the thing. Young people in the UK, they want to go to university and their families want them to go as well. And so I think it's a really important part of the political settlement of any future government that if your child wants to go to university, there's a place for them and it's available. Um, and, you know, I've just commissioned some polling actually to look into that, that parental attitude towards higher education, because it is fair to say mums from working class backgrounds and dads from working class backgrounds want their kids to go to university uh, almost as much as those from wealthier backgrounds. So I think it's an important part of the promise of education in the UK today. Do you think you could maybe uh, expand a little bit on parents, parent power, the parents mm. being the ones who decide which activities most empower their kids and and how you do this in tandem with the Brilliant Club. Absolutely. So I think it's really important to talk about things like you failed at in your career. And for the first 10 years of, <laughs> of my career, I was an absolute disaster when it came to parents. <laughs> I knew I had to engage parents. Like if you want to get anything happening in a child's life, mum and dad need to be on board, right? But we know particularly in education and in terms of higher education, especially if you're first generation, getting mum on and dad on board is a really important part of the process. And I was doing all sorts of things, parents' evenings, you know, road shows, tea, you know, all sorts of things. I, I just couldn't get it going in terms of good relationships with parents. And the harder I tried, the more it seemed to not work. But in 2017, I sat down and, and sort of thought, look, this is not working. I need, I need to have a rethink about how I'm going to do this. And uh, I came across community organizing with Citizens UK, which is essentially a way of working with people that puts people before program. It says that 
People are experts in their own lives. It encourages building relationships before trying to do stuff. Uh, and I thought, well, here's a method that I think could really work on the parent piece. And I also had had inspiration like under my nose all this time, because even now uh, on my phone, uh, I will get text messages or phone calls from either young people or mums and dads in Doncaster, where I'm from. And they'll say something like when I answer the phone, uh, my mum met your mum in the Asda uh, and your mum gave my mum your mobile number. Uh, and so I'm ringing you because I want to go to university and I need some help. Like what, how do I make this personal statement better? What do I do? I was talking to a, a young person who was going to Cambridge this summer. What do I do if I don't hit my grades? You know, all of these unwritten rules, you know, my mum is the person you go to to get that knowledge. And I graduated 15 years ago, right? I'm like really old. So I thought, what if we created loads of my mum? So my mum's called Judy. So we called it the Judy Factor initially, but we founded a group in South London called Parent Power. And I thought, if anything's going to get me sacked, it's going to be this because we were building really good relationships with local mums and dads in local schools, uh, having one-to-one -one coffees with them, asking them about their experience of education, sharing our experiences, saying, what do you want for your kids and what's getting in the way of them really flourishing. And so we built this parent community in South London, which was just magical. And it was mums and dads and grandparents and cousins and all sorts of folks sitting together and saying, it's not right that our kids are going to have a harder time getting into higher education. What can we do to change that? And they started really small. I think they wrote to the University of Oxford and said, can you put on a coach from Lambeth Town Hall uh, to bring uh, our sons and daughters to your open day because we can't afford the train journey there. And Oxford said yes. So then they were emboldened and they asked Cambridge for two coaches and it just grew from there. So that was their first big win. And I think it's important that I use the word win because parent power is all about parents winning. It's not about me giving them stuff or other, other people like deigning to help their children. It's about parents having agency. Uh, and it went all the way through like the biggest campaign and, and one they've recently won is around the fees charged by the Home Office for children to access their citizenship papers. Um, British citizen, children who are British citizens have been here all their lives, um, but because of their parents' uh, immigration status, they basically have to wait 10 years to access their citizenship papers, £1,012. Parents can't afford that. Now wow. the Home Office has a fee waiver in place because of the campaign in South London Parent Power did in conjunction with lots of other organizations. So, I mean, what a win from like Oxford University to the Home Office. And, and so it was really magical and special. And I started to think, like, wouldn't it be amazing if we had a parent power in every town and city in the UK? So we took it to Oldham and it worked in Oldham. So it worked outside of London. And then we decided to basically make the Brilliant Club the sort of spine organization for parent power. And we now have 10 chapters all across the UK. Uh, and in Knowlesley, they want to bring back A-levels because there's no A-level provision. And in Fenland, they want a cycle lane, such a simple thing. But their children can't stay behind after school for enrichment activities, including Oxbridge preparation, because they have to get on the bus at 3.45. And that's the only bus in town. So you start to see parents really expert in what's getting in their kids' way and absolutely lethal in taking down those barriers. And uh, yeah, it's one of the proudest things I've been involved in in my career. Yeah, that's amazing. Are you guys planning to uh, expand more, get more chapters, I'm assuming, hopefully hit more towns? 
we would love to. We've got one in Oxford, actually. It's out in East Oxford if you want to get involved, East Oxford and Banbury. So um, we've got a PhD researcher who's at the University of Oxford facilitating that parent power. But yeah, I would love to uh, build the parent power network. And next year, we're bringing them all together for like a national convention. And someone said it's like um, parent power is like uh, in-person mums net for working class families. And I just love that, right? Like, so this idea that all of these parents from all over the UK are going to come together and are going to have a national agenda for what low-income children need and deserve, I just think is amazing. Because if you just look at post-COVID, children in the UK got a really rough deal. They got locked down, and they got locked down for a really long period, some of them. And then they came out of it, sorry, they came out of it, and all they got all they got from the British government was a tutoring scheme. Now, I was involved with running that tutoring scheme, and I'm very proud that we did it. And the idea was that every low-income student in the UK would have a, a private tutor. But the programme's been one of the greatest public policy disasters of recent years, in my opinion. Um, and so that's all they got, some tutoring. They need so much more, and they deserve so much more, because they stayed home for the rest of the population. Tiny children. And so for me, those parents, I know top of our agenda will be what is the post-COVID settlement for our kids because they are still suffering right now. It really makes me think, yeah, the the sort of alienation that you get. I, I mean, that was a, a universal experience, I think. It's obviously it's obviously worsened by um by context, but the universal experience of one is is one of alienation, even for those people who are at uni. You're getting online classes. Nobody speaks up. And I think there's sort of a general problem in terms of a lack of engagement at university. That makes me think of you go into a lecture hall. There's 100 kids. The lecturer doesn't speak to you. You know, if, if you show up, nobody cares. If you don't show up, nobody cares. Both ways, there's not really that engagement. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really admired about your scholars program when I was looking at it is that focus on close critical engagement with the kids and actually really yeah. nurturing them. And that's similar yeah. to sort of the Oxford system where you're close together and you have a one-on-one -on -one tutorial. So yeah. do you think that's something that a model that we should be trying to emulate just, just more generally in education? I love, I love that you've asked that question, Oliver, because I think one, we're all a bit strange after COVID and I don't think there's enough recognition about the general public psyche is just a little bit odd, right? Uh, and, and I can feel it in myself as well. So I think that's one thing. And we can draw a broader analysis about like what's going on with loneliness in the UK, which is uh, absolutely you know rocketing and was already very high before the pandemic. But you're right. The Brilliant Club is staunchly in person. It is staunchly in person. And I love that. Like we could have taken it all online after COVID and kept it there, but we don't want to. We want to be eyeball to eyeball with kids in small groups, talking about really interesting ideas and listening to what they've got to say and discussing it with our PhD tutor there and, you know, bringing them to university campuses for visits and meeting parents and working with students once they're at university to help them flourish through having an academic coach from the Brilliant Club. So I think there's a magic in that. And, um, you know, we're absolutely adamant about preserving it because we know that's where the value is in the programme. We know that's what brings it to life. So I think I think you're absolutely right. That tutorial, I mean, the tutorials we deliver are very similar to Oxbridge tutorials, I would say. A little bit bigger, actually. There's about seven kids in a tutorial. And this year we'll work with 20,000 students. So if you break that into wow. seven groups of seven, it's really beautiful. We're creating all these tiny communities of learners across the UK. And I, I really, I really hope that in the future of the Brilliant Club, even when I'm not here, it still maintains that scale. So we can grow the programme, 
but we keep the scale of those tutorials because you're absolutely right to zoom in. That, that quality engagement, it matters so much. It's fascinating. And quality engagement, I feel the quality of something is so important. It's not enough to just put something out there. And I also feel now post-COVID, so much, so much has moved online. And I'm sure even this interview, for example, would, would have had some more, some more life to it, were it in person. Yeah. So keeping that human connection is just so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it's a really tricky one though, right? Like we're going to have to navigate through that. And, you know, at the moment, lots of organizations are working out what they do about in-person versus work from home and all the rest of it. Like in every, almost every institution or organization, you can see people wrestling with this issue. Yeah, I, I've just just from experience talking to people as well. One of the things that people say they miss when it's online is fine. You go into the meeting or whatever. Let's let's just say in a natural work environment, you go into the meeting. The meeting's effectively the same, right? You're, you're discussing logistical things. Okay, X needs to be done. Y needs to be done. But you come out and then you go to the break room and you hear somebody's story about their day or or this and that. And I think that engagement is also super important and and hearing those stories. So I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal story, how mm. that has inspired you uh, along the way to do the amazing work that you're doing and the power of telling that. Yeah, I mean, informality matters, right? It really matters. And if we think we can schedule out informality, then we're, we're on a road to nowhere. Um, in fact, just as a little aside, I was talking to a university, SOAS, who, when they were running virtual lectures, would provide a, a sort of space afterwards where people could come and uh, have a water cooler chat, which I thought was a really nice way around it. But it won't be the same. It won't be the same. Um, I mean, I've shared a little bit of my story already. And um, it's funny, I was talking to Sophie Pender at the 93% Club about this last week, because Sophie is someone who's told a story in public as well. Now, my story matters to me. And I think I went through a journey of, first of all, telling it to everyone, and then telling it to no one. And now I'm at a happy medium. Uh, so my story is something along the lines of, you know, I grew up in this pit village in Doncaster. I went to a school where 11% of kids got five good GCSEs. I've always looked after my mom because she's disabled. My dad's a lorry driver. Uh, and I went on a program that completely transformed my life and opened up the world of higher education to me. It was a summer school at the University of Oxford, right? So that's the polite version. And then there's a less polite version, which is I went on that summer school at the University of Oxford and I had that interaction with that candidate who told me we'd all worked equally as hard to get our grades. So it didn't matter which one of us got into Oxford. And it was a moment where, yeah, I would say it was a radicalizing moment in my life. Because I think for the first time, I realized the nature of inequality. And I'm not going to, you know, lie to you. I felt pretty good about myself age 17. Like, felt really, you know, I had a job. I was doing my A-levels. I had a boyfriend. I was think, thinking, you know, I've got it made now. Um, and so to see that inequality laid bare, I think, has always driven me. Whether I've worked in universities, I've worked at Oxford and King's, and I've been a local councillor, and now I work at the Brilliant Club. The common line is... I just think, I, I genuinely think it boils down to the fact I don't think children should be subject to inequalities. Yeah. I really don't think children should be subject to inequalities and we should do everything in our power to change that. And for me, the measure of a decent society is how it, how it treats its children, actually. So that's always been the common thread throughout all of my career. But I think the story stuff is really interesting because um, – 
as especially as I get older, I think, you know, how relevant is that story now? If I tell that story at the Brilliant Club where I'm the CEO, the most well-paid member of staff, most powerful member of staff, does it matter? I think it does matter, but you just have to evolve it, right? And it's a story I tell here and there, and I tell it if I think it will help. But someone once said to me, you never know who needs to hear your story. And so I always bias to sharing it now. Um, and I think it's been... Uh, I think it's been a great help in my career, if I'm totally honest. Um, I think it's really helped me to build, uh, build leadership because a lot of my insights come from lived experience. So I can lead with um, integrity on some of these issues. Um, so it's been a great, a great boon, but it came at a lot of personal pain and heartache in the early days of my career. And I remember feeling it was not professional to share these stories. And I came across an article a few years ago, and I recommend this to everyone who's experienced social mobility. It's a book about this concept of cleft habitus, which is uh, it's from Pierre Bourdieu. It was his last lecture uh, in France before he died. This idea of living between two worlds. And once I conceptualized that, I found it much easier to integrate them. And I found it much easier to move between them um, with greater ease. Uh, and it brought a sense of peace to me as well. And I think socially mobile people are just, they're so important in British society. In such a class-based society, it's really important that you have in-betweeners. And that's what socially mobile people are. They're the most precious in-betweeners in British society, I think. Um, so a defense of socially mobile people, but also a sort of a story about stories, I guess, ultimately. Yeah, personal narratives are so important for one's self-image, for how others view one and, and for motivation. But what really struck me is how you mentioned that you had this cold anger. And I was, I was wondering, cold anger, hot anger, is that kind of beneficial to, to motivate a person and to, to push them to do better? I think anger is a much misunderstood concept in public life. In fact, I'll tell you about an experience I had recently. I was at the Tony Blair Institute conference, uh, hashtag Blairfest, as we were affectionately calling it. It was the glossiest, most amazingly produced conference, right? And there were, you know, Tony Blair and all sorts of amazing speakers. And Jamie Oliver got on stage. Now, I don't know what you think about Jamie Oliver, but I would say I was probably net negative about Jamie Oliver before he got on stage. He got on stage and he was being interviewed by Emily Maitlis and he was furious. He was so angry. He was almost uncontrollably angry. And I've never seen an expression of anger like that in the public realm. And he was angry about free school meals children and the families he's been working with whose children are hungry at school. And it cut through like a hot knife in butter. It was incredible. He got a standing ovation. I think it's the thing that everyone that day will remember. It was just such a stark contrast to what was going on elsewhere. And it reminded me of, of the value of anger. When we, when we used to work with parents, one of the reasons it didn't work working with parents early on in my career was because I was never honest with them about why I wanted to work with them. And I wanted to work with them because I was angry that their children weren't getting decent life chances. But I never told them that. And when I shared the data about what kids in their postcode might expect from life, they were angry too. And then we were angry together. And then we worked together for change. And so it's about working with anger, not suppressing it, but working with anger to convert it into action. 
it's almost oxygenating the action. But I do think that distinction between hot and cold anchor anger, we talk about it in community organizing. And uh, it's a really important distinction, which is acting in hot anger is not what we want. We want that anger to cool a little so that we can make the assessments about how we can change things, that we can be really strategic and become more powerful to change the things that are making us angry. In fact, if you're interested in like community organizing and, and particularly the storytelling, storytelling elements, there's a great free course at um, the Harvard Kennedy School called Public Narrative with a guy called Marshall Gans, which I highly okay. recommend. The story of self, us and now, which deals with anger, but also deals about how you can share your own anger, bring some someone into it, get to hear their story and then work together. So the story of self, us and now. Um, so yeah, don't be afraid of anger. Work with it is one of the lessons of, uh, of the past few years for me. Thank you. That's really powerful. I think your story has really been one of cold anger slowly as you've worked on it. And now, you know, hot anger doesn't tend to manifest in charity making and, and, and that's so it's really good. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Absolutely. So I think that's almost all the time we're running out of, but we've been super grateful to have you on today. It's been an amazing discussion and we have a few listeners from the University of Oxford. So if there's any PhD students, please do get in touch with the brilliant club. And yeah, we just wanted to give you- Tunity, we pay you. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. Um, and we just want to give you the opportunity now, if there's any, any uh, resources which you'd like to point people to in the brilliant club or any ways that any people can help, we'd love to hear that from you now. Absolutely. If you're a PhD tutor, come and shoot it with us. We, we pay you a decent stipend to do that. But more broadly, we come to the University of Oxford really regularly to graduate the children that we work with from all over the UK. We always need people to help us at those events in terms of tours of colleges, but also showing them Oxford, answering questions and answers. So please do let us know if you'd like to support on one of those events. Uh, and finally, you know, all of the things, good things that are happening at Oxford, like I know there's a really active 93% club. Uh, I know there are all sorts of initiatives. Uh, put, put your energy into them or put your support behind them. And everyone's welcome to do that. You don't have to be from the sort of background I'm from to make the case as to why this is an important, valuable part of the university's uh, mission. So yeah, thank you so much for any way you can support the brilliant club. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, and thank you for your time. Um, do you have any closing remarks for us uh, on, on the Love podcast here? No, I've actually listened to all your episodes, though. Like I've listened to all wow, of them, and thank uh, you, really. I've thank I've you. learned I've learned quite a lot from from some of them as well. Um, so Any yeah, favorites? keep on doing what you're doing. <laughs> uh, I like the Alice Campbell one. Oh, I like the you. Royal Mail one. I liked the. Um, I really liked the uh, the guy from the Prince's Trust because obviously it's charity specific, oh, yeah. but he was in the yeah. private sector. And I think people moving between sectors is a particularly fascinating topic. Like what you learn in one place, will it take you to where you need to go in another? So, yeah. And also I can sense they're becoming more professional guys as well. So like the Thank early you. ones. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, can see, I can see the uplift in professionalization. <laughs> Thank you so well, much. You're part of that. We're on the way. We're on the way. We're trying. So. Well, Thanks good luck. So Who's your next guest? Who's your next one we had Wim Hof um, yesterday do you know the Iceman yeah. oh yeah I do know Wim Hof amazing did yeah. you do the breathing live on the podcast well we asked him to we, but he didn't seem too keen <laughs> <laughs> he's been asked that a million times I think so Has he, he? yeah he, he said check it out on YouTube if you want to so it's fine. okay yeah lovely oh fabulous well good luck folks and, and good luck for the next term as well because I know it's an intense one thank you thank so you much. so much guys this right. has been the Loaf podcast and we're checking out <laughs>